the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Fascinating new findings in the COVID world. And then we're joined by Reverend Dan Murata, author of a new book called Liturgy in the Wilderness. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. I'm flying solo today as Aubrey is back out speaking at a conference today. I believe she's at the Amplify Conference at Wheaton College. Looks like an awesome conference. If you listened to the show yesterday, we talked a little bit about the stuff she'll be talking about, some heavy, heavy stuff about church trauma and healing and how do we do better. So definitely in our prayers as they discuss that topic. But uh, we do like to joke on the show that, you know, I pay to go to conferences. Aubrey gets paid to speak at conferences. So she had that opportunity yet again today, and we're excited to hear about it. She'll be back with us tomorrow and the rest of the week, Lord willing. And so we'll get to hear all about that conference. But if you've missed our show yesterday, uh, we would love for you to go get the podcast. Wherever it is, get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com. All right. I I saw a story yesterday and thought to myself, that is has to be where we start today. It is in the world of COVID. A lot of us feel like COVID is kind of past us, kind of doing some reflecting. But let me just read the headline to you. And you tell me if you think this is at all a good idea after all that we've been through. Quote, this is playing with fire. It could spark a lab generated pandemic. Expert slam Boston lab where scientists have created a new deadly COVID strain with an 80% kill rate. Boston University scientists were today condemned for, quote, playing with fire after it emerged that they had created a new lethal COVID strain in a laboratory. The Daily Mail revealed that the team had made a hybrid virus combining Omicron and the original Wuhan strain that killed 80 percent of the mice in a study. The revelation exposes how dangerous virus manipulation research continues to go on even in the U.S., despite fears that similar practices may have actually started the last pandemic. Uh, So here's the deal. When they did just the strain, the original strain, or the Omicron strain, it didn't kill most of the mice. The mice, uh, they they had what a lot of us have had, right? Like some of them died, but some of them uh, just got a little bit sick. But this new strain that they have created is so strong that it killed 80% of the mice. They, in fact, think uh, that this would be, if it ever was an actual strain out there in in the world, that this would move faster and be more resistant than any others. And can I ask the obvious question? Why are we still doing this? I I get it. I understand that, that this is how you learn. But didn't we learn anything from 2019, 2020, 2021, where... It appears that was what was created in a lab kind of got out and whether you believe it got out of the lab or it ended up in a bat or whatever else it might be. 
that this is how we got to the problem in the first place, and now they've created one that is worse? Uh, I, I don't know about you, but this feels like the beginning of a really bad um, Nicolas Cage movie or something, that here we go again. We are going to do something here uh, that is just playing with fire, as they said. Uh, and so, you know, I think COVID is a part of our lives. But for me, if we could just be done kind of creating the new things, uh, maybe we will be better off. But another COVID story that I saw, kind of looking now at what has happened uh, in our lives since COVID-19, since all of our shutdowns of 2020. And we read this, huge study details how the pandemic fundamentally changed people's personalities. This study measured personality traits Included conscientiousness, neuroticism, agreeableness, and openness, uh, which its collaborators provided definitions for in order to nail down just uh, what had changed in participants' personalities and approaches to their lives. They said the COVID-19 pandemic has exhibited significant psychological and behavioral impacts. Uh, and this study is going to try to find out exactly how much this did. We saw striking correlations, the study says, between pandemic data and personality traits, including the fact that individuals have steadily grown less conscientious and more neurotic over time since the beginning of the pandemic. I read this and I was thinking to myself, uh, yeah, obviously. But at the same time, going, okay, we're starting to get the data. We did this yesterday, right, about schools and ACT scores that said, okay, we are now been at this long enough to start to see what the results have been to closing schools or to closing businesses or to people just being scared of possible, you know, pandemic death. And we, we looked at it yesterday with our, with our students, high school students, their ATC, ACT scores are at their lowest in 30 years. And you could go back and get our podcast where we discussed that a little bit. But the obvious number one reason for that above phones and above social media and above what's going on in our schools, all of which matters, was the pandemic. Kids weren't in school for a year and a half. That's going to have consequences. And now what we're finding out here is in all of us, literally the pandemic has changed our personalities. For many people, it has changed the personalities. Creativity, they said, took a hit during the worst of the pandemic. Why? We were locked in our houses. Creativity often doesn't come over Zoom. It comes uh, or across a table talking to somebody and doing this and that. Agreeableness roughly describes the extent to which a person prioritizes the needs of others. And what they found is agreeableness went way down in this study. And so to put it bluntly, uh, we've changed for the worst. And we as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, A, is that true of us and of the church? Have we changed for the worst? Are we displaying less of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Has the pandemic caused me to be to show less love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? 
And will this continue to be who we are as a nation, who we are as a people, who we are as a church? Or is the church going to step up into this and say, you know what, we are going to continue to show agreeableness, hospitality, uh, conscientiousness, love, joy, peace, patience, all of these things when our culture increasingly does not. And therefore, the church is going to stand out and people are going to go, oh, look at that. They are different. It does matter when you follow Jesus. Like, look in the mirror. What has COVID-19 done to your own personality? For some of you, COVID-19 has just rocked you still. And you like, you can't get over the fact that people are like over COVID or whatever. This might be a good time to take the baby steps, maybe get into counseling, talk to a friend. Yeah, I do feel like my personality has changed. But I do think for the church, I feel like all churches have, have changed through this. And, and the question before us is going to be, what are we going to do? Are we going to continue to be less agreeable as a church, less fruits of the spirit as a church, less conscientious as Christians, less hospitable because we're not used to being around people? Or for such a time as this, will the church of America step up and go, nope, we are going to continue to display Jesus. We're going to continue to show the gospel. We're going to continue to live out the love of Christ in word and in deed, even when the world around us is not. So COVID continues to be a major story. And now we have this new strain in a laboratory. Heaven help us if this keeps happening, it ever gets out. But church, I'd like to say, as we are starting to actually see the results of COVID in our lives and in our culture, let's step up and be the men and women who show a different way. Show the way of Jesus uh, as people are still rattled and, and reeling from all that we've been through. David French, one of our favorite guys on the show, he was on for an hour uh, maybe two or three weeks ago. That was a lot of fun. I got the chance to go interview him over at the co- over at Wheaton College. And David is, um, I, he might not like me to describe him this way, but he is this great mix of committed follower of Jesus, political pundit, cultural kind of commenter, all of this stuff. And uh, pretty, um, w- one of the lanes he's kind of landed in in the last, you know, five, six, eight years is, He's pretty been a pretty outspoken vocal critic of President Trump and his administrations while still remaining conservative. And, um, you know, I mean, he lives in the middle of it down in Tennessee, the middle of the Bible Belt. And so David is constantly writing about what uh, what does it look like to be a Christian right now? And he talks about he wrote this week about hypocrisy and hypocrisy is something we talk a lot about on the show, whether it be in politics. Right. Um, We were talking about the hypocrisy, Aubrey and I, the other day about you know, whether it was, um, you know, Republican candidates like Herschel Walker with the abortion debate or Democrat candidates, you know, touting climate change and climate rules while still flying around the country on a private jet or having enormous cars or or mansions or whatever else it might be. Hypocrisy is a great way to undercut whatever it is you're saying. And David asks the the age-old question here, the interesting question. He says this, I want to explore a question that's pervasive in American Christian discourse. If we all know that Christians aren't perfect, why does Christian sin and hypocrisy drive so many people from the faith? After all, many of the giants of the faith committed dreadful acts. Can we demand that our pastors be better than, say, Peter or Paul? 
He said, to answer as best as I can, I want to tie together two seemingly unrelated strands of news. So last month, he goes to that Ligonier and Lifeway research study that we talked about often on this show, the biannual theological survey of American evangelicals. And he says the results were sobering. While an overwhelming percentage of uh, evangelicals believe in traditional Christian sexual morality, a majority also misunderstand the nature of Jesus Christ himself, believing that he is the first and greatest being created by God. That's a problem. Uh, he says a surprising 43% of evangelicals say that Jesus was just a great teacher, but not God at all. Uh, and then he's going to go down and say, secondly, he said, I referenced in a newsletter last week, a fascinating study of 57,000 American undergraduates uh, at top universities found that homeschooled and parochial schooled undergraduates are as or more likely to identify as LGBT or non-binary as those from public or uh, private schools do, which was a fascinating finding because you would think homeschool and parochial that they're going to be learning uh, you know, sexual norms and, and what's the biblical call of sexuality and that they would hold to that. But in fact, the numbers say quite differently. And David wants to use these numbers and say, what does it mean for hypocrisy? So if the church is saying this, but but school kids coming out of those churches are believing something else, or when your politician uh, shows hypocrisy, or when your pastor fails, or whatever else it might be, he asks, if we all know Christians aren't perfect, why does Christian sin and hypocrisy drive so many people from the faith? I think that is such an important question on so many levels, because I'm a pastor, and so often when you're talking to people about the faith and you ask them, why won't you accept Jesus? What is it that keeps you from the church? Why have you stopped going to the church? Whatever else it might be, one of the answers is the hypocrisy I see in the people around me who make up the church. And I have that same response that David has here. When you want to say, yeah, not a perfect church. We are made up of sinners saved by grace. But I think the answer to his question, and I'm going to throw it back into the lap of us pastors, of us churchgoers, of us Christians. The reason I believe that hypocrisy drives so many people from the faith is we, because we as churches pretend that hypocrisy doesn't exist. We in our oftentimes judgmentalism or self-righteousness don't own our own hypocrisy. We talked about this yesterday that I think hypocrisy would not be a big deal. I think all of this would not be such a huge deal if the church and everyday Christians would say to people who aren't believers, yeah, you know what? I'm not perfect. I'm not even going to pretend to be perfect. You know what? I am uh, fallen. Yeah, you know what? I do mess up. Sometimes I don't do what I say and I don't live up to my standards. But let me tell you about the grace of Jesus Christ. I think it's not so much hypocrisy. It's the pretending that the hypocrisy does not exist. And it's not owning with humility where I fail. This is one of the key lessons I learned about parenting. I didn't learn it early enough, but uh, I eventually learned it is you don't need to be a perfect parent, but it goes a long way to say to your kids, hey, I messed up. Hey, I don't want you to do that, even though, you know, I just did that, even though I snapped, right, or anger or whatever else it might be. But let's talk about why we don't act that way. Let me apologize. Have you ever apologized to your kids? I think the church of today 
doesn't so much have a hypocrisy problem as it has a self-righteousness problem that shows itself in our hypocrisy. It has a self-righteousness problem that doesn't allow us to go, hey, I'm, I am I messed up, but let me tell you about the grace of Jesus Christ. We have a self-righteousness problem that says, like the Pharisees, I'm better than you. Listen to me. And I think that's what drives the people from the church. I do not believe it's primarily a hypocrisy problem. I think it's a hypocrisy problem that shows itself because of the self-righteousness of many who claim the grace and the undeserved forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I don't think anybody who's a non-Christian actually believes or expects Christians or the church to be perfect. That would be ridiculous. Nobody believes that. But I do think there's an expectation that if we're going to preach grace, we would actually show grace. If we're going to uh, call out sin, we would call out sin in our own lives first. Jesus had a lot to say about this. And it's not a surprise that Jesus most went at the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Woe to you, Pharisees. Hypocrites, he says, like whitewashed tombs, you care more about the death, uh, how you look on the outside than the death and decay on the inside. I think we as Christians have a self-righteousness problem. I do not believe it's an hypocrisy problem. It, hypocrisy, it manifests itself. Self-righteousness manifests itself in hypocrisy when we're not willing to admit our issues. But man, we live in a culture right now where the greatest sign of weakness is to admit when you're wrong and admit your issues. And that's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel uh, is primarily, it, it, it manifests itself in admitting that I'm not perfect, admitting my mistakes, depending on the grace and forgiveness of Jesus, and then being people who show that grace and forgiveness to other people. And so look in the mirror. I have to look in the mirror all the time when we talk about these things. I'd love for you to look in the mirror and go, am I self-righteous? Is this something I need to um, repent of and confess and do better. I, I long for the church. One of the mantras of this show is that we want the church to do well. And this is an area that I want us to do well. Self-righteousness, may that never be the descriptor of the church. I, last night, this is apropos of nothing. Last night, my son had his last football game. It didn't start till 630 at night. It was at 33 degrees at kickoff with a steady wind. It was miserable. And I was talking to somebody else there. And we we're having this conversation like, you know, it's amazing how every year uh, when it gets cold for the first time, we're like, oh, I can't believe how cold it is, as if this doesn't happen in Chicago every freaking winter and fall. I mean, a couple of years ago, we had inches of snow on Halloween. So I'm sure we'll have a, you know, it'll get warm again at some point here and then cold again. But it was frigid last night there were reports of some snow up in wisconsin there were some spots that got lots of snow yesterday so uh winter is upon us fall is here and um buckle up friends buckle up it's gonna be a long one this is that time of year where you go okay see you in march and we all kind of retreat into our home so hopefully we've got some more nice weather coming but man last night was hard it was fun to watch football but man was it cold we were literally in a sleeping bag my daughter and I opened up a sleeping bag and put it across us just to try to stay warm. It was wild. So, yeah, hats, gloves, boots, all of it. So, uh, well, earlier in the show, if you missed it, uh, we talked about hypocrisy. 
And uh, we most on the show are concerned about hypocrisy within the church, self-righteousness. What do we do with it? We read survey after survey that hypocrisy and self-righteousness are major reasons for people to reject the church and leave the church. Uh, but one of the places that we most see hypocrisy, uh, just not even apologi- unapologetic hypocrisy, is uh, in politics. And there is a real bellwether case of that right now in the state of Georgia with the campaign of Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker, former NFL player, he is uh, one of the greatest college football players ever to play. And of course, he's from the University of Georgia. So therefore, he's running in Georgia. But he's, uh, to put it uh, mildly, he's less than an ideal candidate. And what makes this a fascinating race for the U.S. Senate is uh, that between Herschel Walker and Ralph Warnock, the winner of that could swing the Senate. So all of this money is going into this. All of uh, this attention is going to this. Uh, And since Herschel Walker is on the Republican side, he's got much of the Christian uh, evangelical vote and, and machine behind him right now. But he also has some big warts in his background. Namely, Herschel Walker is one of, um, He's very much pro-life, right, which we are here on this show as well. But it's come out that uh, he basically – it's definitive pretty much by now that he paid for an abortion of uh, somebody that he got pregnant and that he's had you know, children with six different women, whatever else it might be. And so again, we're at this spot for Christians to wrestle with, am I good voting for somebody who doesn't really display – um, the lives that they kind of hold up in public as a politician. I actually have landed on, man, if I lived in Georgia, I think I'd probably vote for him because Ralph Warnock is so dangerous, even though he's a reverend, where he has basically said, uh, you know, I'm a pro-abortion pastor. And I think that's really dangerous. We we could be facing huge uh, this one vote could could really swing stuff in the Senate around issues of life. And so I probably will would hold my nose and vote for Herschel Walker. And if you listen to Aubrey and I yesterday, it was, man, why do we have to keep holding our nose to vote for people? What does it say about our political world? But uh, Bonnie Christian, uh, or Christian wrote this over Christianity Today, Herschel Walker and the Platform of Grace. Christians believe in mercy amidst moral failing, but how then – Should we vote? Let me just read just a little brief portion of what she wrote. She wrote, a recent campaign ad for Herschel Walker is titled Grace. Democrat Senator Raphael Warnock is, quote, a preacher who doesn't tell the truth. He doesn't even believe in redemption, Walker says. I'm Herschel Walker, saved by grace, and I approve this message. The messaging, leaning on Christian language around forgiveness, is part of Walker's campaign among Christian conservatives in Georgia. And it came two days after the former football star dismissed a Daily Beast report that he urged a then-girlfriend to get an abortion after he impregnated her in 2009. It's a neat trick, Bonnie writes. I didn't do it, Walker's overall messaging says. But if I did it, you should forgive me if you believe in God's redemption. You should give me grace. 
He insists receipt from the abortion clinic, the bank image of his signed check, and the signed get well card she presented as evidence haven't shown anything. He brushes off a report in which the same woman alleges that he pushed her to get a second abortion in 2011 uh, and, and goes on and on. And she writes, maybe Walker's telling the truth, in which case I hope his uh, suit succeeds. To be falsely subjected to an accusation like this in the national press would be a great wrong. But unlike some other years old accusations of candidate wrongdoing to which the Walker allegations have been compared, this case has a paper trail. It's not just his word against hers. Walker's early conduct, claiming he didn't know the woman, though they share a son, doesn't lend his denials credibility, nor does his established record of mistreatment of his other children. Uh, So here's the question. Politicalization brazenly lies and conceals his past misdeeds is a dog bites man kind of story. So absent more context, this might not be particular interesting. But there's the question of the evangelical vote. Will pro-life Georgia Republicans, many of whom consider themselves evangelicals, stick with a candidate who claims he's always been pro-life with no exception, uh, except for, obviously, his own unwanted child? Uh, the many, the way many of Walker's evangelical supporters have defended their decision has opened them to accusations of hypocrisy and perversion of redemption as a tool of convenience. That is accusations of what we should call cheap grace. Uh, many people have used the story of Herschel Walker of redemption, and we believe in redemption. Like that's at the at the basis of what we talk about uh, here on the show and as Christians, but. This feels different. Uh, She writes later, had Walker confessed and repented, preferably before reporting forced him to address the issue, pro-life voters could have ushered him to the fold without losing a wit of integrity. Even in the complicating muck of politics, repentance and redemption are always welcome and good. Instead, we seem to have partisan version of what theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously called cheap grace. Bonhoeffer wrote this. The preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, absolution without personal confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That does feel a little bit what's going on here. Walker's never gotten up and said, I did this. I'm sorry. I'm a changed man. Um, But instead, we seem to be offering this grace so that people feel okay going into the voting booth to vote for him so that people feel okay being urged to go in and vote for him. And I just, I wish we would just be more forthcoming and say, you know what? Uh, His vote as a Republican matters for the nation. So therefore I'm going to do this. I, some people have said that, and I have so much more um, respect for them actually than the people who are trying to cloak this in words of grace and forgiveness not gotten up and been like, Hey, I I need your, like, this is just all buzzwords right now. She ends her article. If he doesn't confess our skipping past repentance to public absolution is a lie and a lie told. So the election can still be won. This is power politics, not true grace. And it's an insult to the gospel to pretend otherwise. I totally believe that I'd probably vote for him. If I had to vote for somebody in Georgia, for the reasons we said earlier, but can we stop cloaking this in a sinner saved by grace, all of this stuff? We don't say that for the other side that we don't vote for. Just say, listen, I think this is an important issue and we need his vote and therefore I'm going to vote this way. And that 
I would have so much more respect for people if they did that. You can find this at Christianity Today. Uh, today, Bonnie Christian wrote that. I am thrilled to be joined by the author of a, what looks like a fascinating new book called Liturgy in the Wilderness, How the Lord's Prayer Shapes the Imagination of the Church in a Secular Age. The author of that new book is Reverend Dan Murata. Dan, how are you doing today? Hey, doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Before we dive into the book, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Give us your background. Sure thing. So I'm married to my wife, Rachel. We are high school sweethearts. Uh, We went to junior prom together, and I've been set on her ever since. We've got four uh, wonderful kids, two girls and two boys, and we live in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, We moved here in 2016 to plant a new church, Redeemer Anglican Church, and we've been here ever since. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, someday we'll have to have you back on to ask about that high school sweetheart thing. That, that is, I was a youth pastor and I always told people, your high school dating relationships will not last. <laughs> so <laughs> congratulations on that. So your new book, as we said, uh, that just came out is called Liturgy in the Wilderness and is centered around the Lord's Prayer. Give us kind of the 30,000 foot of this book. Sure thing. Yeah. Well, the, the, the subtitle hopefully should, should make that a little more clear. So how the Lord's prayer shapes the imagination of the church in a secular age. So the idea is that, um, the people of God have always lived in the wilderness. That wilderness is, uh, is paradigmatic. We would say it's, it's the defining feature of, of the life of the people of God. And that's true whether you're Israel, uh, wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. It's true whether you're uh, Judeans in exile in Babylon. It's true yeah. whether you're the early church under oppression under the Roman Empire. And it's it's true for us. But as you go through history, the wilderness takes different shapes. And the current wilderness in which the church now resides is the wilderness of, of secularism. Mm. And one of the really, I think, greatest challenges of our moment is that the church is experiencing, uh, I think, what we might call a diminished imagination, meaning Mm. it's very hard to um, get our minds and our desires and imaginations going on what it looks like to follow the Lord Jesus in a faithful way that might actually lead to our own thriving and, you know, for the purposes of this show, the common good. There you go. Um, Yeah. And so the the idea is that the Lord's Prayer is this, you know, ancient liturgical prayer given to us from Jesus himself that is not only true in a, you know, very literal and doctrinal sense, Mm -hmm. um, but it actually is formative. It actually does work on us Mm -hmm. as we pray it. Oh, that, I, I want to unpack that a little bit more, but let's go back to something you said earlier uh, about the, the present wilderness. There is that wilderness motif throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. Unpack, you said the wilderness of the day is secularism. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, sure thing. So secularism is one of those terms that is really difficult to define with any great precision. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I think uh, I, w- I would probably lean heavily on the work of people like um, the Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor and um, a, a more contemporary philosopher like James K. Smith and describe secularism as, um, you know, I think maybe one of the best ways to describe it is that doubt and skepticism about God becomes the default rather than the exception that if you just, if you rewind the clock through history and you go back, you know, say a couple hundred years, everybody believes in God. It's actually very difficult to be an atheist. It's very difficult not to believe in God Mm -hmm. because the entire cultural imagination points you towards the existence and and reality of a God. Whereas now we live in a time where almost all of the signposts around us point away from the existence of God. And therefore it's, um, 
uh, I think it's James K. Smith that has a really wonderful way of putting this. Like we're all Thomas now. Doubt becomes <laughs> like that's doubt good. just becomes the default setting for most people. Yeah, that's really good. That, I'm going to use that. That's a good line. How's the Lord's Prayer help us? I love that phrasing of imagination and keeps our mind going. How specifically is the Lord's Prayer helpful for us? Sure thing. So um, bear with me. This will take maybe a, a minute to explain. Please. Um, I think we, wish we should begin by just thinking about how do human beings work? Um, how do we go about choosing what we love and what we do and our habits and you know our beliefs? And I, I would almost give a very brief kind of anthropology that goes something like this. From imagination comes desires. Um, our desires get expressed in actions, which over time get repeated and become habits. Those habits, um, then as they solidify in us, we need some beliefs to justify them. Why do I do what I do? And so we end up choosing some beliefs and then you can't hold beliefs in isolation. You need a community around your beliefs. And so you gather people around you who share your beliefs. Yeah. And when you have a community that shares beliefs, you begin to establish doctrine together mm. and, Therefore, if you want to, um, uh, if you want to undermine doctrine, you don't have to adopt, you don't have to attack doctrine head on. All you have to do is starve the imagination and doctrine mm. will wither, wither away on its own. Yeah. Uh, conversely, if you want to really help people grow and deepen in their beliefs and their doctrinal beliefs, you don't begin by teaching doctrine didactically. You mm. begin by firing up the imagination and and when it comes to imagination work, there are few things more powerful than prayer. Um, mm. I don't, I'm not saying prayer is the only way to do imagination yeah. work. Of course, there's like beauty and the arts, and there's all kinds of other things that are incredibly potent, and we should engage those too. But prayer is, is incredibly formative to our imaginations, um, both in a human psychological way, because you are speaking things that have this reciprocating effect of uh, shaping what it is you believe that you want out of life, mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> your desires. Yeah. But it also, I think, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a priest, and so I would say uh, it's my conviction that prayer brings us into conversation with God, mm. who is the source of all creativity and beauty. And so when yeah. we pray, we're doing imagination work. And if we begin to, if our imaginations begin to um, believe and imagine that God really is good and that his desires for us really are good, then that begins to change what we want. When what we want changes, we begin to do different things. When we do to do different things over and over again, those become habits. Those habits begin to shape our beliefs and our communities. And before you know it, there's this whole cascading effect where our lives are transformed. No, oh, it's fascinating because oftentimes we think in our world, uh, I just need more information. I just need more right. knowledge. Just give me more knowledge. <laughs> and and you're really helping point that flaw out. Expand on that a little bit more. Where's the flaw? Because knowledge is good, but uh, what are the limits to just more knowledge? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I do think a lot of us do labor and I would say maybe struggle <laughs> under under the the false impression that if I just knew better things, or if I knew right. different things, or if I, maybe I just knew more things, then, um, then I would really, you know, then my life would change. And I would just, I would just share maybe autobiographically. That's exactly how I used to approach the Christian life. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a time in my life where, uh, this is a number of years ago, but our, I was in the middle of seminary. Our family's living in Denver, Colorado. I'm studying at, at Denver seminary. And at that point in my life, I had never known more 
about <laughs> God or yes. the Bible. I mean, you're reading Greek and Hebrew and church history and systematic theology and all this stuff, right? And yet, um, if you you know were able to be a fly on the wall and just observe my interactions with people, and I would confess, especially my interactions with my family, mm -hmm. my actual practice of the virtue of Jesus had never been more lacking. So mm. in other words, I was better equipped to say, teach a class on patience, yeah. but I was never <laughs> less patient yes. with my actual, you know, loved ones. Yeah. And so there was this like, there was this widening Grand Canyon size gap between what I knew about the Christian life and, and the yeah. way I actually practiced it. And it was really through some, the kindness of some friends who introduced me to the concept of liturgical prayer, which is really a great way of praying when you're not in the mood to pray, which mm. I would confess for me is almost all the time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I would encourage you to go get the book. Uh, his name is Dan Murata, and the book is Liturgy in the Wilderness, How the Lord's Prayer Shapes the Imagination of the Church in a Secular Age. Just a fascinating concept. Uh, I can't encourage you enough to go out and get it. Dan, this has been great, man. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Brian. Yep. My normal co-host, Aubrey Sampson, not with us today. She is off speaking at the Amplify Conference on the campus of Wheaton College. Uh, we, Aubrey will be back with us tomorrow and for the rest of the week. Aubrey and I will be back together for the rest of the week. Uh, as we know, uh, it's election season. The elections coming up that the midterms are just a few weeks away. And so things are getting ramped up. I don't know if you've noticed. I feel like I was watching football the other day and Man, everything was uh, political ads. Every every commercial was a political ad, and we're in that season of political ads and hit pieces and all of that stuff. And we've been talking a lot about this, but one thing that does become um, one of the things that happens as the election gets closer is, especially around important topics, candidates are kind of forced through the media, hopefully, to kind of lay a stake. This is what I believe. And one of those uh, super important ones is abortion. If you uh, have been around this show at all, you know that Aubrey and I are pretty unashamedly pro-life. And we like to say we're pro-life from womb to tomb. But uh, in this particular case, the womb that we want to see babies born. And, uh, you know, through the recent overturning of Roe versus Wade, uh, the landscape amongst our country is really changing. And so this has become, if not the, then one of the most important topics around the election, because as we go into the midterms, if the Democrats have their way in the Senate and have the majority, there's going to be some um, expanding of abortion on a federal level. Uh, if the Republicans tend to win here, it appears that there won't that that won't occur uh, and that there might be a lessening of abortion or at the very least it to remain in the hands of the states. And then states can do with it what they want. And so the real question is for a lot of these candidates is abortion up to what point? Like if you're not – it feels like the main question for conservatives who are anti-abortion that are they're being pressed with is what do you do in the case of rape, incest, um, mother's life, all of this stuff? And there's great debates to be had there. On the other side of the aisle, the real question for those who are pro-abortion – and I use that term on purpose – 
uh, those who are pro-abortion, the real question is, until what point? Are you at six weeks, 15 weeks, or all the way to the end? And I think this is what becomes really alarming, is you start to see how many of these candidates on the Democratic side, particularly, who are really extreme in their abortion views and really disturbing. Like I'm not a one uh, topic or one issue voter, but if I were, this would be it because some of the rhetoric coming out of the democratic side is um, I think just disturbing, uh, tragic, uh, alarming. We'll use whatever word. I'm not sure the words get big enough. I want to play two examples for you can hear what this are. The first, this is, uh, Katie Hobbs. Katie Hobbs is running for governor of Arizona. She's currently Arizona's secretary of state. She's running for governor. She was on uh, CNN the other day, uh, and she was pushed on abortion. And I want you to hear what she had to say. Let's listen to uh, governor, a gubernatorial candidate of Arizona, Katie Hobbs. Politicians do not belong in that decision. But what there do you support? No what should the limits be? The, the decision about abortion should be between a patient and their doctor. So there should be no limits in the law? It should only be decided in the medical office? Government making these kind of mandates interferes with the care that doctors need to provide to their patients. They don't belong in these decisions. Okay. I, so just to be clear, if you uh, become governor... You will push for a law that has absolutely no limits in any point of the pregnancy on abortion. That's your position. That's what you would want to be the law of the land in Arizona. The fact is right now that we have very limited options and that we need to get politicians out of the way and let doctors provide the care that they are trained to provide the health care that their patients need. Politicians don't belong in those decisions. All right. So before I talk about that one, now let me go over uh, to the de um, the Democratic candidate running against Dr. Oz, uh, Fetterman, right? John Fetterman running in Pennsylvania. And so he had this when he was pressed also on CNN about restrictions on abortion. Listen to this. Do you support any restrictions on abortion? I don't. I've always Even believed, in the third trimester? I, I, I believe that choice is between a woman, her doctor, and a god if she prays to one. There was one part of Fetterman that you couldn't hear. Uh, do you support any restrictions on abortion? He said, I don't. The reporter said, even in the third trimester, and Fetterman only shook his head no. So you couldn't hear that there, but he just shook his head no. Going back to Katie Hobbs, this is what often is happening now in those who don't think there should be any restrictions on abortion. It is, I don't want it. The government should not get in the way of uh, between a doctor and a woman. Let's uh, let's unpack that line of reasoning first. We get, the government gets into these conversations all over the place. Might I point you to the conversation we've been having about COVID nineteen vaccines for the last two years? Okay, or vaccines in general. Uh, the government does weigh in on medical issues, but beyond that, this only highlights the fact of does abortion end a life? And what I can't get my minds around 
is people right now who would say that in the third trimester, you're not ending a life in some sort of uh, way that should be stopped. Like, I, I don't want to see abortion at any point, but the conversation at six weeks has got to be different than the conversation in the third trimester. We have advances in medicine and medical equipment and ultrasounds and all of this stuff that go, look, look what's inside this mom at the third trimester. And to hear candidates on the Democratic side, the pro-abortion candidates say no restrictions up to a doctor, up to a doctor at 35 weeks, 36. What, what are we talking about when that there is proven to be chances of viability to say, well, no, that's between a woman and the doctor. No, it's it should not be. And I understand there might be people out there going, yeah, but that's only a small number of the cases. But it's it's informative. And I would also point out that it's also a small number of the cases when you talk about cases of uh, rape, incest or uh, life of the mom. Like if you want it, we need to have these fringe conversations because they become – informative for the rest of it. Like if John Fetterman, if you're in Pennsylvania and John Fetterman saying no, no restrictions into the third trimester, if you're in Arizona and Katie Hobbs is saying no restrictions into the third trimester, it does require you to go, okay, can I get on board with that? And I would say that don't be fooled by the language of, well, that's up to the doctor. Excuse me in the third trimester. It can't be up to the doctor and the mom solely. Like that's a that's a baby. That's a viable child in there. And for people to be saying that there should be no restriction, I think that is um, this is why we believe so much in this topic and why we talk about it so often, because that just can't be like, again, six weeks, 15 weeks. There are debates to be had. I, I you know where I land on these debates, but there's conversations to be had there. But when you're getting into 30 weeks, 32 weeks, 37 weeks, what are we doing and why? Ask yourself this question. Why do these candidates feel like they have to line up with no restrictions over and over and over again? We see that when most of the polling says that even on the Democratic side, this is not actually what voters believe. I causes us to ask a lot of questions. So. Keep an eye on this as we move into – not move into election season. How we move into actual election voting as this actually happens. It's going to be it's going to be interesting to see where the country lands. I found this. I thought this would be an encouraging way to end our time together today. Uh, over at Christian Headlines says this, Americans who read the Bible are better able to forgive others. This is a Christian headlines. We read Americans who read the Bible regularly and say it impacts their daily lives are better able to forgive others than Americans who rarely read the Bible. According to a new study, the study by the American Bible Society found that 94 percent of what it termed, quote, scripture engaged Americans. We talked a little bit about this study the other day, said they agreed with the statement. I'm able to sincerely forgive whatever someone else has done to me, regardless of whatever they ask for forgiveness or not. Uh, the scripture engaged category includes only those Americans who say, one, the Bible impacts their daily lives, two, say it helps guide their relationships with God and others, and three, say they regularly read or listen to the Bible. Meanwhile, 59% of Bible disengaged Americans said they agreed with the statement about forgiveness and 40% disagreed. 
so anyway, I, I want to talk about that, about just forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of these messy, messy topics in the Bible where we don't like to talk about it. Like I'd like to be forgiven, but to have to forgive, to give up bitterness, to show another person grace, whether uh, it be a close friend or somebody who has hurt me, that's an altogether different story. So why would it be, if this study is correct, why would it be that people who are who are in the word would be more likely to show forgiveness and to agree with a statement about forgiveness? Why would that be? Because I don't think it gets easier. I don't think this is an, an, an idea about ease of forgiveness. Forgiveness uh, of other people, especially those who have hurt you, is never an easy thing to do. But I think the reason that this survey is showing us this is that as we are immersed in Scripture, as we are reading, and what is it that we're reading when we're in Scripture? Well, one of the common topics is the forgiveness and grace needed and shown to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if we have been forgiven much by Jesus— and we're constantly reading that. We're immersing ourselves. We are diving in. And I'm constantly blown away that, oh, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. That the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Uh, that as far as the east is from the west, so are my sins. That if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive my sins and purify me from all unrighteousness. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. As I, uh, if for it is by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that anyone should boast. As we read these over and over and over again that I've been shown grace, I've been shown grace, I've been shown grace, undeserved f forgiveness, unmerited favor. You can't read that and internalize that and through the Holy Spirit know that and then not show it to others. Forgiven people forgive others. Hurt people hurt others. Uh, grace um People shown grace, show grace to others. Loved people love others. Uh, all of these are true. And so therefore, when we are in Scripture and when we are immersed in the story of grace, this story of forgiveness, we can't help but then show grace and forgiveness to others. So one of the takeaways here is do you want to become a more forgiving, graceful person? Be in Scripture. Know the story of God's grace to you. Because other than grace to other people's is a response. We show grace to others. If you lack forgiveness, the real question becomes, if you lack being graceful towards others, then the question becomes, do I even really grasp the grace shown to me? Have I lost a picture of that? It's the same thing with things like joy and contentment. If I'm not joyful, and the Bible says that in relationship with Jesus, I have joy. What does that say about what I understand about Jesus? Contentment. Keep going with all of these, but in this one, it's forgiveness. Do you understand? And I want you just to chew on this as you go about the rest of your evening. Are you grateful? Do you grasp who Jesus is and what he has done for you? Do you grasp the grace shown to you? 
do you get it? Because I know in my life, here's where I can struggle. I've been a Christian my whole life. I know the story. I know all of this stuff. And where that becomes a struggle is that the good news, the good news of the gospel for me never becomes bad news, but sometimes the good news becomes old news. Take it for granted. Yeah, you know, of course I'm forgiven. Of course Jesus died for me. Of course, of course. As opposed to when you first heard that good news or when somebody first comes to faith going, oh, my goodness. For the wages of my sin is death, but the free gift of God to me is eternal life through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Have, is that become old news to you or does that still create in you awe? Does that still, does that still cause you to bow down and go, thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace? That's where we, because then a fruit of that will be forgiveness. You'll become a forgiving person. You'll become a graceful person. So sometimes for me in my own life, I look in the mirror and go, if I'm not, if I'm not willing to let go of bitterness, if I'm not willing to work to forgive, if I'm not willing to show grace to other people, does that indicate, is that a warning light on the dashboard that I'm not, that I've become uh, less in tuned with the grace and forgiveness shown to me. Friend, you have been shown grace beyond measure, unmerited favor, beyond comprehension, beyond what you deserve. And now we are called to go show that grace to other people. Chew on that. Let that be, let that sink in for you today. Well, we're really glad that you joined us today. I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day and then come back and join us again tomorrow from four until six as Aubrey uh, will be back with us. The two of us will be back together. Lots of interviews, lots of stuff to talk about tomorrow. So we'll be back again tomorrow from four until six. Until then, I hope that you have a great evening. My name is Brian Fromm and you've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.